0: morning again. Today I'm on double duty. Um, I want us to look at Romans chapter 6 this morning. Romans 6. And I've titled my message, Questions That Bear Asking. Questions That Bear Asking. And ideally, what I hope to achieve this morning is as we are looking at these questions, I'd like you to look at them not in the third person, but in the first person. So it's, for me, the title is questions that they are asking. For you, I'd like it to be questions I need to ask, questions I need to ask. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we invite your presence now that you would open our hearts, that you would find good soil as you speak to your children. Father, open our ears to hear you, open our eyes to see you. Father, may your presence continue to have its place of lordship over our lives, over this church, over this congregation, over anyone who's watching online. And Lord, we surrender ourselves to you. We surrender ourselves to your teaching. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and speak to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Romans chapter 6, I'm reading from the New King James Version. It titles this passage, Dead to Sin, Alive to God. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts, And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. But present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey? whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you are slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you are delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness, and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you are slaves of sin, you are free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness. And the end, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. By the time Paul is coming to chapter six of Romans and asking the what then shall we say in verse one? He's been laying a foundation in the first five chapters. In Romans 1.18, he's already told them that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress have truth in unrighteousness. In 1.21, Paul points out that these unrighteous men knew God. They knew God, but did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but instead became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. They knew God, but chose the contrary. And due to this, and this is one of the most scary passages, verses I read in the Bible, due to this, verse 24, God gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. I think if I was to rank one of the things I fear the most, it's for God to give me up To my uncleanness. In chapter 2, Paul reminds them of God's righteous judgment, which is according to truth against those who practice sin. His judgment is righteous. And in fact, in chapter 3, the first part of chapter 3, Paul declares that all have sinned, and there is not even one who is righteous, and all deserve the judgment of God. In chapter 3, verse 21 to 26, Paul then makes a drastic shift when he says in verse 21, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. That despite their sinful nature, God's righteousness is revealed through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And Paul continues to say that Jesus Christ was set by God as a propitiation by his blood through faith, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. And because of this, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 28, we can conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of law. In other words, once you believe in the propitiation of Jesus Christ, that is enough justification for you to be considered as righteous. Now the NIV, rather than use the word propitiation, uses the term sacrifice for atonement, where atonement means the action of making amends for a wrong or injury. The action of making amends for a wrong or injury. So to read this sentence in another way, Jesus Christ was sacrificed to make amends for the wrong or injury of man due to sin, to make amends for your wrong or injury due to sin. He affirms the justification of man in chapter four verse three by reminding them of Genesis 15:6, that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And then Paul remarks in chapter 4, verse 23 and 25, that Genesis fifteen six, Abraham believing God and it being accounted to him for righteousness was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us, for you and I. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was de- delivered up because of our offenses, and who was raised because of our justification, that even you... By your faith, it will be counted to you for righteousness. In Romans 5 1, we are told that having been justified, we now have peace with God through Jesus Christ, who because of God's love for us, Romans 5:8, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, while you are still a sinner, as we are steeped in sin. Our sin notwithstanding, Christ dies for us. Christ dies for you, he dies for me. So if Christ died for us while we were separated from him because of sin, how is it then when we are reconciled to him through accepting him as Lord and Savior? And that's not me saying it's Paul. In Romans five ten to 11, Paul says this, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Chapter 5 ends with Paul stating in verse 8, that through the one man, Adam, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, that is Jesus, the free gift of salvation came to all men, resulting in justification for life. One man led to sin, one man leads to righteousness. And our benefiting from this righteous act was completely undeserved, and it is purely due to God's grace. So Paul has portrayed two humanities here. One is characterized by sin and guilt and the other by grace and faith. The head of the old humanity is Adam and the head of the new is Christ. In chapter 5, verse 20, Paul says that we sin abounded under the law, grace abounded much more. We sin abounded under the law grace abounded much more. And my thought here is that grace abounded more because if it didn't, it wouldn't be able to overcome the sin and override the sin under the law. The law highlighted more and more the deeper and deeper depravity that man was getting into through increased sin. And therefore, grace had to become more and more and more so that it could overwhelm the sin and thus allow righteousness to come in. And then we come to the first series of questions that Paul asks in chapter six and which forms my message this morning. So the first question is in Romans 6.1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul answers this question in verse 2 where he says you certainly cannot continue in sin because, he asks, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And as I thought about this, I remember the story of Jesus and the adulterous woman. If this was the case, that you should continue sinning so that grace would abound, I don't think Jesus would have told that woman to go and sin no more. By his abundant grace, Jesus forgave that woman, but as he let her go, he cautioned her to sin no more. The abundance of grace does not provide this license for continued sinning. Because grace is available, it doesn't mean you're free to sin because grace is there after all. What is Paul saying here that is relevant to you and I? He's saying that if you die to sin, you can no longer live in it. So does it mean then that if you're still living in sin, you did not die to it? And if you didn't die to it, does it then mean that the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ that Paul talked about in Romans 3.21 has really not been revealed to you? Now the questions that I'm asking are directed to those in our midst who've confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior. Because if you've not done so, the questions really don't matter because you've not died to sin. You're living in sin, actually. And so if you're a Christian, if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, if you're continuing in sin, if you're living in sin, have you not died to it? What happens when you're allergic to something? I'm allergic to cats. Whenever I interact with a cat, maybe I sit on a chair that a cat had sat on, um, or even hug somebody who's been holding their cat. I start sneezing, I start coughing, my nose starts running, and my eyes, which are already sizable, swell. You don't want to see me. And I get quite, quite uncomfortable and have to take an antihistamine to reverse the allergic reaction. Now because of that, there's a friend of mine who really loves cats, and I'd never visit with her. So she keeps telling me, look, let's do this. I will keep a packet of antihistamines in my house. So when you come, before you come out of the car, you pop an antihistamine, and then you come and we spend time together. You won't get affected by the cat. And I've told her, no, I, I, I won't come to your house. I can't knowingly take myself to a place that has a detrimental effect on me. So I don't visit with her. So basically, what you've agreed is let's be talking on phone. So we talk on phone a lot. And if she wants to meet, um, actually, she wants to meet, she sits across there and I sit here because I know she's been hugging her cat. And so if we interact with each other, I'll fall sick. Similarly, I think this is what Paul is saying, that how can you who died to sin live any longer in it because you have to be allergic to it? KVC, we need to be allergic to sin. If you're a believer you need to be allergic to sin. Sin needs to have an adverse effect on you. When you encounter sin or you commit sin, of whatever nature, it has, it must affect you so badly that you want nothing to do with it because your very nature died to sin. And I think that's what Paul is saying here. John Stott in his book, The Incomparable Christ, I I quote this book a lot when I preach because it's a deep book for me. John Stott says this, having been united with Christ through baptism in his death and resurrection, although it's not impossible that we go on sinning, yet it is inconceivable that we should. How can we live in what we died to? Sin must make you cough, sneeze, have a runny nose, has swollen eyes, so that you want nothing to do with it. And if it doesn't, you need to ask yourself whether you've truly died to sin. And by the way, unlike my allergy, which is treatable with an antihistamine, or should I say controllable, if you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, There is no godly antihistamine to protect yourself against the adverse allergic reaction that sin is supposed to have in your life. There is no antihistamine for you to operate in sin if you're a believer. If you're not adversely reacting to sin, let me tell you what possible ungodly, ungodly antihistamines you're taking. They are called compromise. Obstinacy, defiance, hard-heartedness, callousness, unfaithfulness, or any other word you can think of that gives Satan room in your life. If you're not being affected by sin, I think you're getting your antihistamines from Dr. Satan. And he's the wrong doctor to go to, I can promise you. You must have an allergic reaction to sin if you are a believer. Second question, Romans 6.3 Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? When Christ was raised from the dead, it was impossible for him to die again because he conquered death. You know, it occurred to me that I've actually never thought that Jesus can't die again. Has it ever occurred to you that he cannot die again? He finished with death. He'll never die again. And Paul says in Romans 6, 4, that we were buried with Christ through baptism into death, and that just as Christ was raised from the dead, even so, we should walk in newness of life. In the same way, he cannot die again. So, too, we cannot go back to the old life before Jesus became our Lord and Savior. And Paul's question here wants you and I to appropriate the magnitude of what happened when you were baptized into Christ Jesus and to his death, which meant that not only was your sinful nature given a final blow, but that your new nature came with a radical transformation of your life. John Piper has a book called The Passion of Jesus Christ, 50 reasons why he came to die. And one of the reasons he gives is that Jesus died to achieve his own resurrection from the dead. And he says this. Christine, what happened to John Piper? John Piper says this. The death of Christ did not merely precede his resurrection it was the price that obtained it. The death of Christ did not merely precede his resurrection. It was the price that obtained it. The Bible says he was raised not just after the blood shedding, but by it. That his raising, his being raised was because he died. The wrath of God was satisfied with the suffering and death of Jesus. The holy curse against sin was fully absorbed. The price of forgiveness was totally paid. The righteousness of God was completely vindicated. All that was left to accomplish was the public declaration of God's endorsement. And this he gave by raising Jesus from the dead. When the Bible says if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins... The point is not that the resurrection is a price paid for our sins. The point is that the resurrection proves that the death of Jesus is an all-sufficient price. What John is saying is this. Don't focus on Jesus being raised from the dead. Focus on the fact that he died. Because it is that death, it is that suffering that paid it all. The resurrection was a byproduct of his death, but not the end in itself. And this is what Paul's question is asking you. Do you understand what Christ's death means for you? What it means for your life going forward from the moment you accepted him as Lord and Savior? Is it really possible for you to grasp what John says and still dalliance with sin? Can you still be comfortable with sin if Jesus died for you? Can you still be accepting of sin in any form or shape. 2 Corinthians 5.17 which you know says therefore if anyone is in Christ is a new creation all things have passed away behold all things have become new. So what Paul is saying to you and I is that it should be impossible to walk in the old life because of the radical transformation that has happened to you after being baptized into his death. Due to his death the old man was crucified with him that the body of sin may be done away with. That we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are free from it. That we are dead to sin, but alive in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why has Paul asked this second question? Whether they realized that they were baptized into his death and all that should mean to you and I. I think Romans 6, 12, 13 gives the answer. He says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Paul is telling them, that there is the possibility that despite being believers, there is the possibility of allowing sin to reign in their mortal bodies. And indeed, 1 John 1 tells us, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And which is why verse 9, 1 John 1 assures us that if we confess our sins, because we'll be sinful, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But then you come to First John 3, 6, which declares that whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. And then verse 9 goes on to say that whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. So the answer to the second question is that once you've been baptized into his death, it's not a matter of trying not to sin. Your very nature, your new nature, should reject sin and be allergic to it. Your new nature cannot reach out for any antihistamine to dull you from the adverse effects of sin. Because even the antihistamine to dull the effects of sin should be detestable to you because your members have been presented as instruments of righteousness to God. Question three, Romans six fifteen. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Shall I sin because I am not under the law but under grace? Paul has just told them in verse 14 that sin shall not have dominion over them For they are not under the law, but under grace. Now remember, the law was about do's and don'ts. But grace is about justification. The justification we have because of the atonement through Christ's death. So that our salvation is not based on what we do or don't. Because nothing we do or don't do can grant us eternal life. Our salvation is based on our believing in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is based on your surrendering to him as Lord and Savior of your life. And due to this, you certainly cannot deliberately continue sinning when you are living under grace because you are under a new dispensation. In other words, the surrender of your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior means the rejection of anything that invites sin into your life. Let me ask you this, when you're confronted by a sinful situation, what's your response? And I think your response will determine who is your master. Do you linger in that situation before deciding what to do? And why are you lingering anyway? You know that question where, when you go for, say, premarital classes, there's a question single people like asking, how far is far enough? You know that question. Probably most of us have asked it. But you know what the real question is? What percentage of sinful conduct constitutes sin? In other words, how far into sin can I go before it becomes sin? Does that sound ridiculous? How much of sin do I do before we can say, I am now sinning? When does a sexual sin in a program you are watching, or a movie, become sinful to watch? How many items of clothing needs to be removed before you say, now this is getting sinful? <laughs> and I think Paul's next question answers this question. Romans six sixteen. Question four, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? The grace of God freed you from the slavery of the law and sin. And by the way, it just didn't free you, it didn't leave you in a vacuum, but it freed you into Righteousness. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. The grace of God is transformational. When you appropriate God's grace, that grace, not you, when you submit to the Holy Spirit, immediately begins transforming you into the new person, you have become. I want to pray. Lord Jesus, as I was preparing this message, um, I remember the opposition that I faced because, Lord, your grace is what we need to hear. And so, Lord, even now, um, I want to pray in the name of Jesus that this screen shall not go off. Because, Lord, your people need to hear your word. Satan, I come against all works that you're trying to fashion to stop God's grace being understood by those who need to understand it. And I declare that no weapon that is fashioned against God's word shall prevail. Father, I'm declaring your power and your authority over this screen, over the media team, over the electricity. Father, your grace shall prevail. Because your grace is why we are here. So, Father, I lift you up. Father, I exalt you. Father, I magnify you. And I pray, Lord, that our hearts will find, will find you. They will hear you. And that, Lord, even if that screen uh, doesn't go on, that, Lord, the screen in our, in our hearts, in our minds, will remain on to hear from you. In Jesus' name I pray. So the grace of God is transformational. And it's that grace when you submit to the Holy Spirit that begins transforming you into the new person that you're becoming. And I want to emphasize that it's God's grace transforming you to remove any notion you may have that you can do it by yourself. And Paul was clear in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 when he said, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then in verse 20, Paul adds that we are God's workmanship, created in Jesus for good works. Good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. And this was actually quite um, enlightening for me, that even the good works we do after we are saved, Even the good works you think you're doing because you're saved, they are not your works. God already prepared them beforehand. And so all we are doing is allowing him to guide us into them. We are not doing good works because we've gotten saved. We are doing good works because once we got saved, once we are in the transformational life, God is leading us to what he's already prepared for us to do. And so this is my takeout from the fourth question. God's grace, God's grace in you, presupposes he is your Lord. And God as your Lord presupposes obedience to him. And obedience to him presupposes pursuit of righteousness. And the pursuit of righteousness presupposes abhorrence of sin in your life because God's grace in you empowers you Against sin, I wish it was there. <laughs> God's grace in you presupposes he is your Lord. When is your Lord, his grace is sufficient for you. When is your Lord, then you obey him. As you are obeying, obeying him, then you are pursuing righteousness. As you are pursuing righteousness, it means you are allergic to sin in your life. Because God's grace in you Empowers you against sin. And so you have to keep going round. You get to God's grace, you get to obedience, you get to pursuit of righteousness, you get to allergy to sin because God's grace is in you, and then you go back to God's grace. You can't run away from God's grace. And then we come to the last question, question five Romans 6 21. What fruit did you have then in things which you are now ashamed? Christine, go back to the previous one. God's grace in you presupposes He's your Lord. He has to be your Lord. And God as your Lord presupposes obedience to him. And obedience to him presupposes pursuit of righteousness. And pursuit of righteousness presupposes abhorrence of sin in your life because God's grace in you empowers you against sin. When God's grace empowers you against sin, then you are allergic to sin. Question five. The NIV puts it this way. What benefit did you reap at the time from the things you are now ashamed of? It's an interesting question because it makes the assumption that the reader is ashamed of certain things from their old past. So you're supposed to be ashamed of those things you used to do back then. And Paul adds that those things that they are ashamed of lead to death. The fruit of sin is death. If I go back to my cat allergy, anytime I see a cat, it reminds me of the discomfort I get around those feelings. And I want nothing to do with it. In your new nature as a Christian, you must not want anything to do with the old. You have new fruit because your new life under grace, which is contrary to your old fruit, old life, which was under the law, your fallen nature. Romans 6, 22, 23 says, But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is saying that now, because of God's grace, you've been set free from sin and what it leads to, which is death. But you've not only been set free But God's grace, not you, produces fruit that leads to holiness and eternal life. And this then emphasizes the fact that the past things you did amounted to nothing and were only leading you to destruction. Now, I want to clarify that my message this morning is not what you need to do to stop sinning because you are saved, or what you need not to do when you're saved so that you do not sin. It's not about do's and don'ts. What I'm trying to say in case you missed it is that because you're saved, because Jesus is your Lord, the grace of God is available to you to lead a life that is free from sin. The grace of God not only afforded you the gift of salvation, but it also affords you the way to holy living, when you understand what this grace is. And it's only because of God's grace that you can declare that you are dead to sin, but alive in God. Let me ask the worship team to come up. The grace of God helps you to lead a holy life. You can't do it by yourself. But you can only understand that grace of God when you understand what Christ's death meant to you, means to you, means to, to me, means to life, to being able to live. If you are outside God's grace, believe you me, you will sin. Because when you are out of God's grace, you don't have the capacity, you don't, have the, you don't even have the, the mental will not to sin, because you can't. I want to end with a quote by Andrew Murray, in his book, Covenants and Blessings. It's a long quote. When you're watching later, you can press pause and read slowly. He says this. Grace is not only the power that moves the heart of God in its compassion toward us when he acquits and accepts the sinner and makes him a child. It is also the power that moves the heart of the saint, moves your heart, and provides it each moment with just the disposition and the power that it needs to love God and do his will. It's God's grace that enables you moment by moment, second by second, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, to, do, to love God and to do his will. From not knowing that grace always and alone does all the work in our sanctification and fruit bearing. Men are thrown on their own efforts. It becomes, it's you trying not to sin. Their life remains one of feebleness and bondage under the law, and they never yield themselves to let grace do all it would. Grace stands in contrast to our own good works, not only before conversion, but after conversion too. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God had prepared for us. Grace alone can work them in us and work them throughout us. The work of grace is not only the commencement, but also the continuance of the Christian life. So if you're struggling with sin, if you're struggling to do what is right, perhaps you've not appropriated the grace of God. You've not surrendered to God's grace. And Mary continues to say that once we grasp that grace is what carries us in our new life, which we will now be exhibiting uh, in us, then we consent to live a life of faith in which every moment, everything is expected from God. That because you're living under grace, every single moment of your life, you're expecting something from God, not from yourself. And it is only then that we will experience that sin will never, for a moment, have dominion over us. Sin can stop having dominion over you, but only if the grace of God is what you live by.